Well, it's nine o'clock. Good morning, everyone, uh, and welcome to the Wessex LMC um, GP Rolling Education Programme. My name is Dr Julia Hempenstall and I'm a Wessex GP and also part of the team leading on these sessions. Uh, and today we're absolutely delighted to welcome back Dr Paul Cook, uh, who's a consultant in chemical pathology and metabolic medicine. And he came in October and uh, delivered quite simply a, a, a changing well, certainly for me, changing practice uh, delivery on biochemistry. Um, it just seems that Paul's really able to make it really relevant to GPs and how we deal with our results by ourselves in our rooms out there. Uh, and so we were delighted to welcome him back to a second one. If you didn't watch the first one, you are able to view the webinar online. If you log in through the Wessex LMC's events page, uh, you'll be able to, um, uh, to watch that one. Um, but Paul, we're delighted to have you back. Thank you. Uh, and I'll hand straight over to you if that's all right. Okay, Julie. For, for attendees, if you want to ask questions along the way, if I'd like you to use the Q&A button um, and I'll either interrupt Paul and, and pose your question there if it seems like it's going to help your understanding at that point or we'll keep to uh, keep the questions till the end. So um, please do make this interactive because it's about your learning. So over to you Paul. Okay so let me just share the screen. Oh, hang on. Okay. See that okay, Julian? Yep, I can see that absolutely fine. Thank you. Okay. Right, well, morning, everybody. Um, I'm actually on annual leave at home today, so I do apologise if a dog or interrupts or anything like that. Um, hopefully not. So, um, as Julia said, I did give a talk uh, previously, and for those of you that saw it, the first few slides are identical because I want to bring everybody up to speed with the philosophy and then it will um, be new material. So um, first thing I just wanted to point out is that um, myself and my team are really very keen to interact with primary care. You are after all the largest users by far of our service. Um, I'm very happy for you to ring me directly on my phone, uh, use these emails and there is a duty biochemist email as well which um, myself or one of my team will pick up and endeavour to answer by the next working day. So please use that. Um, just a few things really. Um, there are, we have a highly automated laboratory um, processing thousands of samples a day and it's not possible uh, to provide results that are correct all the time. And the theme that will emerge throughout all of this is that your clinical impression is far more important than the diagnostic tests that, that we provide. And there are a number of areas where things can go wrong. Um, the first one is the, the so-called pre-analytical phase before the, before the samples even got onto the machine. So, for example, one might get uh, potassium EDTA contamination into one of our serum tubes, uh, and that can give spuriously high potassiums or a, a, a strange low calcium, for example. Um, and then there's the analytical phase. And as I say, in the best will in the world, when the machines are pipetting and sampling thousands of samples and doing thousands and thousands of tests a day, errors will be made. And there are also issues with these analytical techniques with interference uh, that can occur. And you need to have your wits about you to pick those up. And we've got a couple of examples of that later, later on. 
And then the so-called post-analytical phase where it's us interpreting the results uh, and that obviously can on occasion go astray, perhaps over-interpreting them or, or, or missing a fundamental point. Um, there are a couple of fundamental questions really. The, the, the first one is, is the result we got actually normal? And that's harder than one can imagine. And again, really critically, is it consistent with um, the clinical findings in uh, in front of you? And that, that really is the most important thing and is the get out of jail free card really. So when we generate uh, a reference range or a reference interval, um, usually what occurs is about 120 so-called normal people um, will have the test measured. And that sometimes is stratified according to sex because there might be sex differences. It might be stratified according to age because there may be age differences. So a good example, for example, uh, would be troponin. So it's normally higher in men and it's higher in the elderly compared to the young. And assuming that the data is normally distributed, a mean is generated and then uh, convention dictates that you use plus or minus two standard deviations to define your normal range. So that means that 2.5% of the normal population have a value outside the, um, the upper reference limit and 2.5% of the population have a value below the lower reference limit, which means that one in 20 so-called normal people have um, a abnormal result. And it stands to reason that the more tests requested on any indiv particular individual, then the more likely you're going to get an abnormal result by chance alone. So just for 10 tests, the probability is 40%. And then if you crank it right up to 20, then the probability is 64%. And that's not un uh, an unusual scenario, certainly the 10 tests, um, given that we have electronic requesting. And for very good reason, um, we need one needs to be pragmatic uh, in clinic where we don't get the opportunity to see patients very often and we want to sort of cover and touch all bases and uh, a sort of one-stop shop as it were but of course that has got consequences in terms of false positive tests and then secondary testing after that if we're um, over enthusiastic it goes without saying that there isn't an absolute demarcation between normal values and those seen in disease. That, that's a nonsense. We're you know, a complex biological system and uh, these cutoffs are arbitrary in many respects. Equally, abnormality doesn't always mean a pathological process. And most importantly, normality does not mean that a pathological process is absent. And we can come on to that later, um, particularly with the use of tumor markers. Although it does um, suggest, however, that if you've got a very large deviation, it is likely that something astray is going on. And this is the final duplicate slide, but it demonstrates a very important principle. So this was uh, a study done really a very long time ago now, um, looking at ventilation perfusion scans in the diagnosis of pulmonary emboli. And although that's got clearly nothing to do with biochemistry, uh, the principles remain absolutely uh, remain, regardless of how we approach a diagnostic test. And the thing I want to emphasize here is about clinical prior probability. 
So if we take this uh, the study, if your prior probability of the pulmonary emboli is very high and the scan probability is very high, you've got the disease, essentially. Equally, if your clinical probability uh, is very low and the scan probability is very low, you've pretty much excluded the condition. But the thing I really want to emphasize is that if your clinical probability is high and the scan probability is low, or the diagnostic test of choice, there's still a very high chance that actually they've got the condition. It comes back to the first principles that your clinical um, impression is far more important than anything else. So let's get on to some new topics. So hyponatremia. So um, this causes uh, quite a lot of bother. It's quite common. And clearly it's really important to correctly identify its cause um, because this will directly dictate the management of hyponatremia per se, uh, be it water restriction or salt and water repletion, but also there may be an underlying primary condition that needs treating in its own right. And the differential diagnosis and trying to establish the cause of the hyponatremia is got some absolutely fundamental tenets which we need to follow. So the first thing is you cannot make an assessment of the cause for hyponatremia without an assessment of extracellular fluid volume. Secondly, we need some basic core tests as well. And these include the plasma and urine osmolality, plasma and urine uric acid, and I'll come on to the reasons why, and also a urinary sodium. So if we go through this, so the first thing is from a biochemical testing point of view is the plasma osmolality and this is either going to be normal raised or low in the context of the patient with hyponatremia so if the patient's hyponatremic and the plasma osmolality is normal and always they've got normal tonicity then the cause of the low plasma sodium is an artifact and this is the so-called pseudo hyponatremia and that will occur in patients with a severe hypertriglyceridemia seen here. So these are lots of microns floating on the top. So they're gut derived. I talked about that in my last talk. Or more commonly, um, a combination of VLDL. So that's this uh, section here and chylomicrons. And um, we're seeing severe hypertriglyceridemia traditionally defined as sort of greater than 10 millimoles per liter, but for a pseudo hyponatremia, probably 20 to 30 millimoles per litre or higher, uh, much more frequently now because of central obesity, alcohol use, metabolic syndrome, type two diabetes, mellitus, et cetera, insulin resistance. And um, certainly my uh, lipid clinic has changed from, is this familial hypercholesterolemia to, can you see this patient with severe hypertriglyceridemia? So that's a, that's a very common cause for a pseudo hyponatremia. And the other is a severe hyperproteinemia due to a, a, a paraprotein, most nor normally, um, obviously, multiple myeloma. So important to do a plasma osmolality. Equally, if the plasma os osmolality is raised, then that's due to osmotically active substances, um, which would most commonly be glucose, so significant hyperglycemia. Um, or advanced renal failure with um, uremia. And then obviously in the hospital setting, the use of things like mannitol. But 
by far the commonest situation is that we have a low plasma osmolality, hypotonicity. And what we then need to understand is how are the kidneys responding to hypotonicity? And what they should be doing is maximally diluting the urine. And the urine dilution ability is due to antidiuretic hormonal vasopressin activity. So what normally happens is that if you become hypertonic and tonicity is one of those things that's very important to tightly control so you don't get uh, cellular swelling or cellular shrinking, particularly the brain, which is sat here in a rigid cavity that can't, certainly can't uh, take um, a brain swelling uh, without consequence. Um, or that the hypothalamus detects that perhaps there is a uh, reduction in atrial receptor firing. That's because the um, of volume depletion. So it's there to, pr to protect volume to, uh, the volume of the uh, intravascular volume and tonicity. And both of those things will then secrete or cause secretion of vasopressin or ADH with two effects. One is a blood vessel constriction, which will tend to put your blood pressure back up. And then also the action on the aquaporin receptors in the kidney to reabsorb water. And, but again, to increase um, arterial pressure. So that's in the context of hypertonicity. So if you've got hypotonicity, um, then the appropriate physiological response is to have a very dilute urine and maximal dilution is probably less than 100 millioles moles. And if you measure urine osmolality, and that is the case, there are two conditions that can do that. The first is this psychogenic primary polydipsia. It's a psychiatric illness where patients drink liters and liters and liters of fluid. Um, and the other one is this rather strange condition, but actually it's out there more often than we think is so-called beer potomania. And what that is actually is that in order to excrete water or free water, we need solutes. We need to be able to, we need to eat healthily. Alcoholics who have a tea and toast type diet, for example, who consume large quantities of beer, um, have an inability to excrete free water and will become hyponatremic. And this graph here will uh, demonstrate the impact of um, solute intake and the ability to excrete water. So if you can dilute your urine under normal circumstances to 50 milliosmoles um, and you consume a normal diet, you can drink at least 15 litres of fluid a day without becoming hyponatremic. But if you eat very little, uh, then that reduces right down to five litres. So those are not that unusual conditions and must enter the differential diagnosis and it's the power of doing a urine osmolality. Urinary sodium, on the other hand, is important because if it's low, and you'll see a variety less than 10, less than 20, less than 30 millimoles per litre, um, if it's low, that would suggest that the patient is attempting to retain salt and water. And that will be in response to aldosterone. And aldosterone, 
um, goes up if we become volume deplete. So if one examines the patient and they have low intravascular volume, it will be due to fluid losses, perhaps diarrhea and vomiting, perhaps loss of fluid in a stoma. But also in patients who have an expanded extracellular volume, in other words, those with edema, um, heart failure, liver failure, or decompensated heart failure, decompensated liver failure, and nephrotic syndrome, they have what's called a low effective circulating volume. And um, the, the kidneys detect that they believe the perfusion pressure is low, aldosterone goes up, and you become, um, and you get a low urinary sodium. So urinary sodium is very, very important also. So assessment of the extracellular fluid volume is not straightforward. Uh, the books would um, talk, talks about skin turga, mucous membranes and whether they're dry or not. And many years ago, I was a renal registrar and spent every day, all day going around examining patients and for fluid uh, status. And it's not an easy thing to do. And I think at the end of it, there were probably two signs that um, can help. The first is the assessment of postural drop in blood pressure, whereby one lies the patient, get a baseline blood pressure, stands them up, and then measures the blood pressure each minute for five minutes, looking for a drop in systolic plus or minus diastolic blood pressure with a value of greater than 20 over 10 millimeters of mercury, um, confirming a, a postural drop in blood pressure. Now, of course, Diabetes with autonomic failure can do the same, but in those patients, you wouldn't expect to get a compensatory tachycardia. So that can be helpful. And the other clear cut sign of salt and water overload. So sorry, previously the, that postural drop would suggest intravascular volume depletion, uh, significant volume depletion in any case. And then salt and water uh, overload, pitting edema, in the ambulatory patient, it will be clearly in their legs, ankles, feet, and in the less ambulatory, then around the sacrum. And they're probably the two uh, hardest um, signs for evidence of salt and water depletion or overload. So we've measured the plasma osmolality in a patient who's hyponatremic. They have a low, um, and it's low. We've examined them. They've got pitting edema. And then all we need is urinary sodium. If the urinary sodium is less than 30, they have, it's either due to cardiac failure, decompensated liver disease, or nephrotic syndrome, which should, should be fairly easy to tease out. Nephrotic syndrome being gross proteinuria. Liver disease at this stage would have a raised INR, and then obviously clinical examination for cardiac failure. And if it's greater than 30, then this is due to renal failure, the inability of the kidneys to regulate salt and water. So-called uvolemic hyponatremia are the patients who neither have clear-cut evidence of a low circulating blood volume or a clear-cut evidence of salt and water overload. And the main diagnosis in this category, excuse me, is the syndrome of inappropriate ADH. And this is the thing that people worry about because of its uh, association with malignant disease, notably small cell lung carcinoma, but many others. There are 
other conditions that can cause this um, pulmonary various pulmonary infections central nervous system disorders and there is an increasing list of drugs that can cause inappropriate ADH um, which we'll come on to in a second now SIADH becomes a default um, diagnosis uh, without rigor really so what we need is hyponatremia we need hypotonicity in other words a low plasma osmolality we need a demonstration that the patient cannot maximally dilute their urine in other words a urine osmolality of greater than 100 taken at the time so uh, that the plasma osmolality is low so it's very very important to get paired samples and that means there must be ADH floating around in an inappropriate way because the physiological response should be a maximally dilute uh, urine. Clinical uvolemia, which we've talked about, at normal salt intake, and then normal thyroid and adrenal function and no recent use of diuretics. Now, thyroid function, normal thyroid function is needed to excrete free water but really we're talking about gross primary undiagnosed hypothyroidism not subclinical so but we must do tfts in this situation and then the problem of excluding adrenal disease which is part of the criteria but in most patients the clinical probability of this is quite low and we know that cortisol has a circadian rhythm and to give yourself your best chance of excluding adrenal insufficiency, then a 9 a.m. cortisol uh, is the recommended time, not, not randomly throughout the rest of the day. And if it's less than 100, then actually very likely they've got adrenal insufficiency. And if it's greater than 400, it's very unlikely. Now we do publish uh, cutoffs when we release cortisol results. Um, and this, with around 460 for males and females and then higher actually for females in the oral contraceptive pill because the oral contraceptive pill causes an increase in cortisol binding globulin and therefore total cortisol but i think the most important thing is that we take if you're considering adrenal insufficiency in any clinical scenario 9 a.m cortisol is the key test Now, the issue of patients being on diuretics is not uncommon, particularly the thiazides. And a useful way around this is to use the fractional excretion of uric acid. So the fractional excretion of anything um, is calculated using the urine concentration of that particular analyte, in this case, uric acid times the serum creatinine, divided by the serum uric acid in this case and then the urinary creatinine times 100 and in patients who have a fractional excretion of uric acid of greater than 12 percent um, that is pretty sensitive and very specific for the diagnosis of SIADH and then if it's less than 8 percent then it's very unlikely they've got SIADH so it's a useful discriminatory test and even in and 
um, a low uric acid in just a low uric acid in the plasma can be a good sign of water overload um, due to SIDH. So it's a useful test. Now I'm often asked, well, what do we do about the patients between eight and 12%? So biochemistry can't always help us, um, but it can certainly narrow, narrow things down. And in those patients, if there is still a diagnostic dilemma, then that's the sort of patient that could be, should be referred uh, to secondary care. And occasionally what um, might be done is an infusion of saline, for example. And in SIDH, the sodium doesn't budge and in volume depletion, the uh, sodium will go up. Medications are a really common cause. So thiazides can cause inappropriate ADH as well as hyponatremia through volume depletion. SSRIs, carbamazepine are very common. The list is large, it's growing all the time. And so historical data is important for two reasons. The first one is that we, we think about um, hyponatremia, SIDH, and we worry about it because of perhaps its prognostic um, implications. If we think, well, if we diagnose this IDH, could this be a malignancy? If you go through your historical data, often these patients have been hyponatremic for years. So there's absolutely no way that can be a malignancy uh, excreting as a paraneoplastic phenomenon excreting ADH. Not possible. Um, equally, it's very unlikely they got adrenal insufficiency on the same basis. It's likely that they would have come a cropper after years and years and years of hyponatremia if they had adrenal insufficiency. So that can be quite reassuring. And the other thing is, is to look at the temporal relationship of medication when it was prescribed and if there've been a change in hyponatremia. And if that is the case, then to think about whether it'd be possible to reduce the dose or even stop the medication and see if the hyponatremia um, corrects itself. So medications is very, very important. And then finally, we've got a hypovolemic hyponatremia. So you've got a low serum sodium, a low plasma osmolality. You've examined them and you think they've got a low intravascular volume. Then random urinary sodium again is very helpful. If it's less than 30, that suggests extra renal losses of salt and water. And the kidneys are avidly trying to reabsorb salt and water to protect the volume and to protect the blood pressure. And if it's greater than 30, then there's something wrong with the kidneys and that could be a salt losing nephropathy um, due to perhaps you know an NSAID interstitial nephritis for example or uh, Addison's disease. So in summary historical data for hyponatremia is really important particularly if you've seen the uh, sodium for years. Um, it, it's just not possible to make an accurate diagnosis without examination of the patients and documentation of um, whether they're euvolemic, hypovolemic or hypovolemic. And it's really important to get the capture these biochemical tests as a one -er paired. So paired plasma and urine osmolality, paired plasma and urinary sodium, and the um, urinary uh, uric acid and creatinine to work out the fraction excretion of uric acid. So really important to get uh, that data set as a one -er on all patients with hyponatremia. Just a little bit on creatinine. Um, so this is a product of creatine and creatine synthesized in the kidneys and liver and then transported to muscle and brain for 
for energy mainly. And one to 2% of muscle creatine is converted to creatinine in a day. And therefore creatinine production is related to muscle mass. And this is really, really important concept. Uh, and as creatinine is endogenously produced at a constant rate, it's been used as a biochemical test, not of renal function, because obviously there's endocrine function there as well, but of glomerular function. And plasma creatinine is inversely related to glomerular filtration rate. Now the problem with creatinine is it can decrease by 50% before plasma creatinine rises beyond the normal range. So you can see here that if you've got a creatinine clearance or a glomerular filtration rate of normality of 120 mils per minute, then by the time your creatinine has gone above the so-called normal range of 120 micromole per liter or so, you've lost 50% of your functional renal mass. You've essentially removed a kidney. Um, and for this reason, and this wasn't uh, heavily appreciated, for this reason, uh, formula-based estimated glomerular fil filtration rates are used to alert the uninitiated to the degree of renal failure that they might not have otherwise appreciated. Now, traditionally, these equations would have been the Cockrell-Gault. Uh, the problem with that is that it requires a weight, and this isn't information that is available within the laboratory system. So a number of uh, equations were derived. Initially, the MDRD from a modified diet and renal diseases study. Uh, and most the most up-to-date recent one is the so-called CKD-EPI, which appears to be more accurate at around 60 mils per minute GFR. And this just requires, it's a, it's a, a multivariate um, equation, but all it requires is creatinine, sex, and there is a correction for ethnicity, which would have to be manually put, because again, the laboratory data can't pull it. But why is this important? So this just demonstrates the point really. Um, if you take a 20 year old male weighing 90 kilograms and mainly muscle, um, and he has a serum creatinine of 120 micromole per liter, uh, just within the normal reference range, <clears throat> then he has an entirely normal EGFR of 110 mils per minute. If you take a elderly lady, 45 kilograms with the same serum creatinine, then their GFR is substantially reduced at 27 mils per minute. So this is why um, GFR uh, as a reportable uh, number is, is so important. However, and there we go, we report that and have been, and it's the basis of chronic kidney disease classification now in patients who, um, who develop stable chronic renal impairment or slowly uh, reducing uh, renal function over time. However, the, the next problem that was determined was the appreciation or lack of appreciation of a change in creatinine. So for any individual, although the creatinine itself may mask the reality of how severe their renal impairment is, a change of creatinine is very, very significant for a particular individual because it shows a deterioration in renal function for them. And so the NHS with the Think Kidneys campaign uh, wanted to improve our earlier detection of acute kidney injury. And the basis of that is a concept of understanding 
is there a difference in results from one day to the next for a particular analyte in a particular patient? And this is based on how accurately, no, not accurately, apologies, how precise the lab can measure uh, a particular substance, in this case, creatinine, and then the natural biological variability. So in other words, if you took uh, a creatinine from the same person at the same day every day, how much would it just naturally change through bio biological variability? And equally, if you took the same sample and measured it multiple times on the machine, how um, what would be the coefficient of vari variation? How, how precise would that be? Um, and precision is where things tightly cluster and imprecision is where they scatter around a larger data set. And there's lots of things out there now that tell us what the biological variation is for within a patient and actually between groups of patients. And we can easily work out uh, how precise um, each our assays are with the data that we run real time. And through uh, an equation, AKI stage one is either 1.5 times the baseline level or this funny number, 26 micromole per litre. And 26 micromole per litre is the value above which it is likely that you cannot account for this through biological or analytical variability and is therefore maybe clinically significant. So that's how the AKA stage one is derived. And then as you will know, there's stage two, stage three, depending on the severity of the acute kidney injury. And this has been a real godsend, certainly I think for, for the lab, but also for, for the patients, because we didn't really have a good way of flagging um, AKIs. We used to have thresholds of particular concentrations of creatinine and that, that's a nonsense you know we used to ring out creatinine are greater than 400 and quite rightly people would say well hang on a creatinine of 200 was significant in this patient because it was 60 a week before so this is a really really powerful tool in early detection and it's so that the alert goes out and then one can make an assessment about what the cause for that might be. So is it pre-renal acute renal failure, which is it, was it an early sign? Is it an early sign of sepsis? Has the um, cardiac failure deteriorating? Have they been started on an ACE inhibitor? Or, or intrinsic uh, acute renal failure? Had, did the patient recently have contrast media in the hospital? Again, is it an early sign of sepsis? And then of course, post-renal. Have they got a ureteric stone obstructing their better kidney? Um, have they gone into have they gone into urinary retention? So it's uh, that's the basis of of uh, AKI. Just wanted to change tack completely and just come on to tumor markers. Um, so these are any biological substance that can provide diagnostic or prognostic information in patients with malignancy and. They may aid diagnosis, they may, they may assess prognosis, guide treatment, monitor progress, or be used as a screen, which is um, not ideal. So the ideal tumour marker would have high sensitivity, high specificity, and it would have organ specificity. It would clearly correlate uh, with the stage of malignancy and also the um, prognosis. You will be aware that there are many common tumour markers uh, out there. And let's talk about the ideal and high sensitivity. So if we take CEA, um, mainly used for colorectal carcinoma. Now, 
this is slightly outdated slide <clears throat> because people use the TNM classification now as opposed to Dukes, but the principle is here. So if you have early disease, the sensitivity of CA for diagnosing it is 3%. And if you go through the stages, it goes up, but even with distant metastases, so advanced disease, the sensitivity of CEA for colorectal carcinoma is only 65%, and that is typical for tumor markers. So they're not sensitive. You want them to be specific. The problem is there are a number of benign conditions that will also cause an increase in tumor markers. So for example, acute urinary retention will put up your PSA. Chronic liver disease will put up a multitude of tumor markers. Colitis will pick up uh, CA, CA125, CA153, which is the breast cancer tumor marker. Uh, jaundice will put up both CA199 and CEA, and these are clinical scenarios where you think malignancy might enter the differential diagnosis. And non-malignant ascites, so maybe that's due to um, cardiac failure, um, can really put up CA125 quite dramatically. So they're not specific. Um, to cancer and they're not specific unfortunately to specific organs so if we take uh, ca199 so this is traditionally used um, for pancreatic carcinoma but it can also go up in colorectal carcinoma gastric carcinoma hepatocellular carcinoma so ca125 is a good example of that whole host of benign conditions where CA125 can go up. It can happen during menstruation, um, pelvic inflammatory disease, peritonitis, um, and a whole host of malignancies affecting different organs. And just to point out here that cardiac failure can increase values up to 300 and ascites, say from liver disease, can cause astronomical increases in CA125. Um, its use did creep into the NICE guidance. Um, if these criteria are fulfilled, it was quite a controversial um, inclusion because the positive predictive value in that setting of array CA125 is only about 1%. Nevertheless, it is, these are NICE guideline recommended approach. So in practice, there's no ideal tumor marker um, but millions of requests are made each year and many, many of them are inappropriate. So the main reason should be to pre-treatment levels once a diagnosis um, has been established. So they can aid monitoring and treatment decisions. But it's a very common request. It's used to try and establish a diagnosis. Um, and there have been various audits over the years uh, and 35% of these requests were screening tests where there was a very low index suspicion of malignancy. It's not infrequent that I get a phone call for this particular reason where the value is increased, the probability of the disease was low, and of course we're slightly stuck because um, there's no easy way of making that, that number won't go away. So really the best thing to do is to not to test in the first place. And it can be quite indiscriminate. So CA153, breast cancer tumor marker, CA125, clearly ovarian carcinoma mainly, and you know, a large number were requested in men. So 
non-selective requesting of tumor markers is really undesirable. Uh, they lack sensitivity, they lack specificity, they can cause false reassurance, false negative because of their lack of sensitivity, undue alarm, that's the real big one, um, as a consequence of um, false positives and not, easily to not easy to resolve uh, and can cause uh, secondary investigations which are time consuming and unnecessary. The other quick point to make is that tumour marker assays <clears throat> um, are immunoassays. They're very, very specific to the analyzer they're measured on. Um, they're not standardized, these um, measurements. So when you're measuring tumour markers, it's very, very important to use the same laboratory. So um, no role for opportunistic screening. I can see I haven't got a huge amount of time left, so I'm going to scoot past HbA1c and I just wanted to finish up on um, biotin of all things. So this is a water-soluble vitamin. Um, it's found in many foods, uh, very ubiquitous at meat, offal, vegetables, nuts, seeds, avocados, legumes, bananas, you name it. So deficiency is really very rare. There are some at-risk groups, potentially pregnancy, alcoholics with a very poor diet. Um, it's gained a lot of patients with multiple sclerosis uh, were taking high-dose biotin um, because uh, it was thought that perhaps it helped remyelination of the nerve sheaths. Um, so this was a very good reason for people to be taking it. And unfortunately, um, that uh, has been tested, that hypothesis has been tested, and it doesn't work. So there's no role for biotin in that clinical setting. Um, there's a rare inborn error of metabolism uh, that causes biotin deficiency. And this presents with hair loss uh, and, uh, and a very characteristic rash, amongst other things. And Biotin now uh, is well and truly in the psyche of people who want shinier, healthier, longer hair. Uh, that's unproven and was more than unproven. It's not the case. Um, and, you know, standard sort of material um, pushing um, biotin as a supplement. Uh, and Google biotin and there's just um, click images. It's just a phenomenal of biotin supplements. So, why does this matter? Um, you know, just leave them to it. You can't overdose on biotin. Well, the problem is uh, that biotin can interfere with our immunoassays. Um, and the reason for that is because, um, so immunoassays are things that measure things like HCG, prolactin, thyroid function tests, cortisol, tumor markers, etc., And Part of the, um, the mechanism for this is the use of biotin on antibodies to bind the analyte. And then this thing called streptavidin, it's got a real affinity for biotin. And so we use biotin uh, and it's binding in our immunoassays. And if patients take biotin, it can uh, interfere quite significantly. And we've seen a little mini epidemic here 
of very, very unusual thyroid function tests, whereby free T4 and free T3 are particularly affected uh, with, this is 500%, so five, you know, huge increases in T4 and T3. Um, and also more worryingly, a, a significant reduction in CA199. So that's for our assay at Southampton using the Beckman analyzers. It varies, its interference varies depending on the um, analytical platforms that are used. Um, different other, different analytes could be affected to a different degree. So I suppose what I'm asking um, is that we're just on the alert for this and that um, we'll ask our patients whether perhaps they're on biotin and uh, at least stop it for the test. I mean, there's no good role that this stuff does any good anyway. Um, there seems to be an epidemic of biotin supplements, B12 supplements, you name it, but um, it has untoward consequences and unnecessary investigations. And a large increase in isolated increase in free T4 has got potential pathological um, diagnoses, um, uh, thyroid resistance, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, clearly, historically, um, if thyroid function tests have been very normal, that might be reassuring. So I just wanted to alert you to that because we've got a huge number of these patients coming through and having to have additional testing. Um, and then just while we're on that, final couple of slides, um, there's also heterophilic antibodies that um, can interfere with assays. And they're quite common and they can interfere with up to perhaps 5% of immunoassays. And a common scenario are um, perhaps a patient who is on thyroxine treatment for primary hypothyroidism, whose TSH comes back at say 40. And that would suggest under normal circumstances that they are non-compliant. And they say to you, but honestly, I am compliant. And you believe them, you know your patients, um, and it may well be due to antibody interference. So it comes back to the theme that I started off right at the beginning, that if the results don't make sense, then please make contact with us because there's things that we can do. Uh, we can try and remove those antibodies. There are dilution protocols. We can send them to other laboratories, etc. cetera. Um, so where are we at? 9.46. So um, a quick rattle through, just a taster really an advert for the lab. Hopefully, please give us a ring if you've got any doubts or queries. I think that's where we're most effective rather than perhaps giving lectures. Um, please adopt a critical approach to, to biochemical values. Please use it as guidance only. Um, your clinical judgment, honestly, is, is more important. And there are really quite a few potential pitfalls, impossible to, um, to, to alert people to, but your instinct will tell you that something's not right. And then we can do our bit at our end to um, try and resolve that issue for you. So if I stop this and hand over to Julia. Thank you so much, Paul. Yet again, you've made very complex uh, biochemistry seem pretty uh, straightforward. And I'll certainly be printing those off and keeping those in my room, particularly around the hyponatremia. We've had quite a few questions in. Um, uh, those of you listening, this is your opportunity to put them in the Q&A now and I'll take Paul through them. Um, and I might just go um, biotin. That's something that I had no idea of. Um, and um, we've had a question, how long would you need to stop the biotin before? for the test. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, it's water soluble, so it would disappear quite quickly. A few days, uh, I think, would be more than adequate. I mean, to be honest, it could probably be a lot less. Um, 
yeah, but a few days will be fine. I think, you know, the other thing is why the heck are they on it? Um, but that's a different, you know, you haven't got time to delve into that, but a few days will be fine. But it is quite, it's really quite common now. Um, we are double figures each week, I think. We're seeing very odd free T4 results. And a typical clinical details would be, you know, some, something to do with hair and all this sort of stuff. So you sort of know. But the trouble is there are conditions out there that can increase the T4 that we need to sort out as well. Of course. And I think we sometimes the GPs, we forget how much over the counter or from the magazine preparations. Yeah. Are <laughs> yeah. um, and I think most of the time it's because they're desperate and they're looking for another option. Um, sure. but I think just having that conversation. Yeah. Um, we've got a question. Would it help before a thyroid function test if is requested um, that we actually need to ask on the form about patients taking biotin or any other supplements? Is it something you, know, you want to routinely do? Uh, do you know what? That's a very good idea. And it may be something that we could help out with the actually as a prompt but uh definitely i i think that it's certain demo i mean i don't want to be disparaged it's certain demographics you know it's you know but I, you could ask routinely absolutely but it is definitely the people that are more worried about hair it does tend to uh, it sounds terrible, it does tend to be the, the females more more often you know um and it would be far better to to, to get them off the biotin for all immunoassay tests. I mean, these are interference tests that, that have demonstrated it's mainly thyroid function, but you know, we don't know, um, and it could have an impact. So that would be ideal actually, um, just to say, look, please don't, you don't even have to be judgmental, do we just say, could you just come off the biotin for a couple of days before the blood test? That, that would be ideal. And then that would, it would knock it on the head. Yeah, I think for us, it's a conversation about uh, what the patient's belief is in that and how yeah. it is helping them. And then uh, yeah. and that's very much our role. That leads me on to just wondering if there's other things that when I mean, I was not aware of biotin before today. Are there any other kind of major categories that you see interference on? Not not really. Um, that that sort of reared its head. Um, it's sort of I don't know where it's where it's come from, but it's it's certainly hit us over the last year or so. There aren't any that we know of at the moment, um, and it's very specific because it's just the way that we measure these things. Um, so no, not not really? no. Okay, so going back through the talk, um, questions about tumor markers now. Um, I think really interesting to highlight the limitations of them and um, I think one of the things we often see in general practice is that we've got the ice panel and we've got the ability to tick things yeah. we're not quite sure what we do you know what we're looking for um, and I've seen great articles about GPs going fishing um, and what that actually means um, but we've got a question that says if tumour markers are not being used appropriately could the hospital or the lab could you actually start declining them someone's asked so, so that's a very, very good question. Um, so we're in the realms of, uh, of demand management. The problem that occurs with this is that um, one, one implements uh, a demand management process, there will always be exceptions. So for example, we'll reject it. Um, and then actually it was appropriate because GPs acting on behalf of the colorectal surgeons, for example. And it creates a mini industry of total angst, actually, a sort of conflict between myself and primary care or my team and primary care. It requires quite a lot of effort um, to administer. And there's multiple, uh, I mean, look, it's a very, it's a, it's a well-meaning question. And, and, and actually, you know, there are labs that do have quite a rigorous approach, but it's, it's where the the exceptions are often are more than 
you know, if it's if it was if we blanketly said no and there was just one or two every now and again, it would be a good policy. But actually, it's more than that. And I've had lots of situations where I've rejected. I said, "This is ridiculous." I mean, I'm not going to do this test. And then actually, the poor GPs rang up and said, "Well, the neurologists asked me to do it." You know, and so it is an approach, but it's very difficult to administer. It's really difficult to administer. Yeah, and I think it's probably the conversation around education events like this, where we actually yeah. we just ask each other to just think about it twice before you tick a box. And um, I, think, uh, I, I think that's right. And I think tumor markers of all the, of a lot of the tests that are done, it really, they are the ones that have the untoward consequence. There, there really isn't a role for testing them um, unless you've established the diagnosis, because because of all you know that list i only rattled through it but there's so many benign conditions and the thing is because it's tumor marker you know if they're increased that then suddenly and understandably people are oh my goodness what i'm going to do and there's nothing you can do other than going back okay what was my clinical probability for this and feeling very uncomfortable that you're going to turn around and go oh, i'm not going to i'm not going to take this any further and it's not being cavalier it's better not to have tested in the first place and there's so many examples where a, where these tumor markers will be marginally increased you know again it's about that demarcation you know this reference range but even if we say oh it's probably the 2.5 percent but it could be it could be a tumor you know it's a very it's really just don't measure them and I think that goes back to the principles you went through with us again at the beginning about the measurements and why we actually do these tests. Um, and I, I certainly know part of the overdiagnosis and overtreatment group in general practice thinks about this a lot as well. So um, I guess what we're asking is think twice before you tick yeah. that box or before you ask, what is it that your your pre-test probability is? What yeah. is it that your clinical findings are? Exactly, exactly right. And I think sometimes, and I again, this I, I hope I'm not coming across, I'm not this isn't being disparaging or critical is that often we do these things for reassurance um because think oh, it'll be great it'll be normal and then of course you're stuck stuck with a situation when it, it isn't normal it isn't reassuring and it and then it's a can of worms and i often get um approached about patients who are demanding particular tests um and it seems as if I'm being obstructive, but actually the reason for saying no, and I'm not the one having to front it up to the patient, is because there's this assumption that if we do the test, it's gonna be normal and that will put things to bed. And actually um, that often isn't the case, but it definitely won't be the case for 2.5%. No, that's a good a good thing to remember. Um, then, okay, going back through the talk, we talked about you talked about creatinine and reminded us about that and acute kidney injury. Yeah. Um, someone's asked, what if my patients are taking creatine uh, going back to over-the-counter supplements that people are taking it Does can that affect the creatinine it, it can interfere with the assay actually if it's taken in high enough volumes yeah so um that would be something ideally somebody wouldn't be taking okay and what um when you say high enough volumes can you just give us a sort of well i think i think it's going to be it's going to be the the the, the, the gym bunnies yeah. So thinking about someone who's exercising a lot um, and yeah. uh, buying it. Okay. Yeah. Um, and is there any advice about if you're going to measure the kidney function, how you would ask them, how long you'd ask them to stop it for? Or... <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I, look, well, the truth is there must be a correct answer to this. Uh, I don't know what it is. Um, but, you know, if they come off it for a week or something, then you're going to be pretty safe. Brilliant. 
Brilliant. Yeah. Okay, next question. Um, keep them coming, guys. Uh, patients that demand free T3 because of what they've seen <laughs> on the internet. Yeah, I've, I've had this about missed thyroid abnormalities. How do we refuse? And and, and this has been oh. asked. How do we refuse politely? Or what are your thoughts? Um, right. So um, you guys are the skilled negotiators. You 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 see that you know this is I'm sitting in an ivory tower um, and I'm not subjected to this. So the truth is it's it's baloney. So so there is no indication, there is no role for T three free T three in that setting. Um, um, now that may or may not be a helpful statement, um, but that's I think it's not just. So there's lots of this, isn't there? There are lots, there's the B12 crowd actually in our crew. There's the T3 crowd. Um, how you approach that, I don't know. Other than, I think, I, crikey, it's a philosophical question. Other than knowing the ground that you stand on is very, very firm. I think that's the key, isn't it? So I think if, so, if you've got a normal TSH and you've got a normal T4, uh, there is no role for T3. There absolutely is no role for T3. Now we use T3 in other situations to look for discordance and blah, 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 but, but no way. Normal TSH, normal T4, there is no role categorically. Paul, so that's think, a very clear statement. Leave it up to us to negotiate. Because you're right, we know our patients. Uh, yeah. And I can al I can almost feel sometimes the question coming. I know it's coming. So um, it's really nice to have that sturdy confirmation from an expert like yourself. And, and could I also just make the point actually with T3? So I know this sounds awful, um, but there's a lot of uh, credence put on the tests that we do. And T3, for example, it ain't a very good test so um we're not that good at measuring it um it bounces around its precision is quite wide you know so there again there's a real danger that um that if you test it you just might get a result that you don't want um and that's got nothing to do with pathology so we, we really want to have the prior probability and the good good clinical indication for doing these things that's great. Thank you. So we've got three more minutes. So I'm going to give you one more question and then sum up. Okay. Um, uh, and there's a bit of a theme to questions today. Um, protein supplements are in everything now, e.g. even Weetabix. Have you got any thoughts about how that's affecting um, things for, from your point of view? Uh, the main area, actually, uh, for protein supplements are this is I do a kidney stone clinic um and um it's a very common cause for very abnormal urinary biochemistry it's real you know uh it's real so if we we would normally consume 0.8 to 1 milligram per kilo of protein you know which is way in excess really well it's in excess of probably what we need so we're always peeing out this stuff so this so the, the protein on top of that will cause um really significant hyperuric azuria um and uh, uh hypercalciuria and things so that's that's the area where i see it the most actually is is urinary biochemistry which is not something that you guys are going to see very often um and it doesn't do a huge amount of good but trying to tell my oldest son that um is falling on deaf ears <laughs> Well, Paul, it's not fallen on deaf ears here today. <laughs> um, I just want to take the moment to thank you um, for, as I say, unraveling very complex uh, biochemistry and making it seem really relevant to us out in our surgeries. Thank you for your time, particularly okay. since your annual leave. No, no, um, it's all right. Um, and some feedback straight away, an amazing talk. Please talk again. Thank you. Um, so I think my take home messages are I'm going to print off your hyponatremia. It's the first kind of really thorough, um, almost like a 
flowchart that I can use to try and diagnose things. Um, I've re realized the importance of paired samples uh, and um, the limitations of tumor markers. And it was really interesting to have that conversation. And then also about how our patients have, may be playing a role in interference uh, in the lab uh, and how things might interfere with assays. Um, I do hope that everyone listening this morning has, um, I can see that there's lots of comments coming through in the chat to say thank you. We will send out feedback to um, forms to everyone that's attended. And one of the things that we really want to get across to you listening is that we change things. We invited Paul back because he had overwhelming support for um, the education he gave us. So if there's topics that you want us to explore or if there's speakers that you know about that you want us to get in, just message us. We are really happy at the LMC to try and make this really relevant. Um, and moving on, we've got a couple of events coming up. Um, Tuesday the 23rd of February, we've got a half day webinar um, and that's going to cover a fascinating topic of eating disorders. We've got a doctor who has an eating disorder giving a personal perspective and we're also going to talk about medical complexity, um, medical mistakes. Um, that's called Hearts and Heads, Theirs and Ours. Have a look on the website for that. Um, on the 5th of March, we've got another webinar that's going to be a healthy lifestyle webinar, some fantastic speakers coming again on the website. And then on the 11th of March, um, I'm with dermatologists learning from dermatological lessons from lockdown. Um, please sign up to any of those. Um, I am very grateful for your time. Thank you, Paul. And I, I can see in the chat already, I, I think I might be emailing you again <laughs> for another session. Um, no but problem. I'm going Thank you. I'm going to end the uh, morning there um, and I wish you all very well. Thank you.